Well, good morning. Man, what a full house we have in here today. Look at all of you in the middle of the summer when you've got a hundred other things you could be doing, you're choosing to be here, which is awesome. So give yourself a hand for being here. And if this is your very first time with us today, man, let me just extend a a welcome to you. I'm so glad you're here. My name's Joe. I get to be the lead pastor here, and I am so glad you're here. And I know that looking for a church is a really hard thing to do, and I hope that your search ends today, that the Lord puts on your heart, this is where you're supposed to be. We would love to have you, and I hope that you'll be here. And anybody watching us online right now, and you're looking for a church home, I hope that your search ends right here with us. But welcome to all of you joining us online as well today. It's great to be back with you. Our family's been on vacation for about 10 days, and I appreciate the time away of relaxing and just have fun with my family and to just get a little R&R, and I don't know what happened while I was away, but somebody turned up the heat in Arkansas. Man, it is hot right now, and where we were in the Caribbean, I thought it was hot. I thought I was in the hottest place on earth uh, when I was gone. No, 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 Arkansas is the hottest place on earth right now. And I came back from, I went from extreme heat to extreme, extreme, extreme heat. And uh, anyway, I'm glad to be back. It's good to be away, but I love coming home. Did you appreciate Kent Williams and Jason French the last two weekends? Um, I have known those guys for forever, it feels like, and I'm always appreciative when uh, they can come and share. But welcome here today. Take out your Bibles, please. And if you would, find the book of James, the book of James. James is towards the end of the New Testament, it's towards the end of the Bible. And let me just give you a heads up. When you find the book of James, go ahead and put a little bookmark there, or if you've got one of those ribbons that come off your Bible, uh, mark it because we're going to be in the book of James next week as well. So today and next week, book of James. And let me just give you a little forecast of what, uh, you know, what things look like in the future. So two weeks we're going to be <clears throat> in the book of James. And then in August, please, 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 just, just make it a priority. Make it a point. I am not going to miss church in August. As much as it is up to me, what I can control, I will not miss church in August. Because uh, I want to share with you some things that the elders and I have been praying on and working on and thinking about for this entire year already. And I'm going to be preaching on those things that has to do with our identity as a church. It is, I'm going to be talking about the things that go down to the very core of who we are as a church family and what God has called us to do and how we're going to get there. And so please, friends, if I could just beg it of you, I need you to be here in August. In fact, I'm going to put you on the spot. Raise your right hand. And, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to go that far. But let me just encourage you just be here as much as it depends on you. Uh, be here in August. It's, it's a very, very important season for us. Um, have you found the book of James? Have you found it? You got it there in your lap? Um, I love the book of James. In fact, if, uh, if you've never read the book of James, um, let me encourage you this week, before you come back next week, read all five chapters. Or if it's been a long time since you've been in the book of James, go back and read it. You'll be encouraged. It is considered one of the most practical books in the New Testament. I'm simply put, the book of James is straightforward teaching about what it looks like and what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 
So these two sermons from the book of James that I'm gonna be preaching today and next weekend, it really does set the table, if you speak, so to speak, of where we are going in August. You know, they're not, they're not directly linked, but it sets the table. So these two are gonna lead into what we're talking about. And so you be here, you read the book of James. Um, if you read James, you're gonna see that it covers a whole lot of different topics. In fact, when you read it, you might be thinking, this is just a bunch of random teachings, but really they're more connected to that. Written nearly 2,000 years years ago, but just as relevant today as it was all those years ago. So when you read James, when you sit down this week and read it, you might have the impression, man, this guy is writing just to me. I mean, this is what I'm dealing with every single day of my walk with Jesus. That's how practical the book of James is, and I encourage you to read it, be challenged by it. Now, obviously, I'm not going to be preaching the entire book of James in just two weekends, but what I'd like for us to do as a church family these next two weekends is really spend some time and zero in on, on something that James wrote about in great detail in his letter. In fact, when we read it together, I think our response is going to be something like like this. Man, that's the kind of faith that I want. We're going to read it and go, that kind of faith right there, that's what the Lord wants from me. And so these next two sermons, I've just, this little mini series, I've just called it that kind of faith because that's the response that I think as a church should have when we read what we're going to read today. That's that kind of faith right there. That's what I want for me, and that's what the Lord wants for me as well. As you read the book of James, it doesn't take you long as you get into the first chapter to read this. James 1, 22. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So do not merely just listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. I said a moment ago that James covers a lot of different topics related to, be men, related to being men and women of great faith. However, there is this overarching theme. There's this understanding that just overlays the entire book of James that when it comes to your faith and the things that we do because of that faith, they are linked together. Faith and actions go together and you cannot read James without having that understanding. That what I believe and what I do because of that belief, they, they cannot be separated at all. So James is like, don't just listen to the word. Don't just intellectually receive it and do nothing else. You're like the guy that looks at himself and forgets what it looks like. No, 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 no. Do what it says. Christians are to be doers. That's, that's really what James is talking about. Christians are doers. Now, what is a doer? Well, if you were to look up the definition of doer in the dictionary, it would give you this definition. A doer is the person who does something. Now, aren't you glad you came for that today? <laughs> what is a doer? A doer is a person who does something. Well, man, I, I'm enriched today. I'm gonna be better. There's another definition. This one's a little better. A doer is a person who acts rather than merely talking or thinking. Christians are doers. And what James does for us is he lays out some very straightforward teachings about what Christians do. Christians, people of great faith. Faith is what do I believe? This is my faith. This is what I believe about God. This is my faith. And our actions, the things that we do because of that faith, 
Well, they are connected at the hip. And that's really a lot of what James is all about. Christians are doers. Don't merely listen to the word and you deceive yourself. No, you do what it says. So I'd like to turn your attention to chapter two, verse 14. This is where we're gonna read and this is where I think we're gonna get done reading and our response is, yeah, that kind of faith. That's, that's what I want, that kind of faith. Chapter two, verse 14, James begins with a question. He says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters? And by brothers and sisters, he's talking to the church. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Now, that is a very direct question. Well, what a way to start you know, your thought here. I got a question for you, church. That's what he's saying. If you say that you have faith but you have no deeds, is that a saving faith? He goes on to say, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together. And his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So James asks a very direct, and what I would say a very tough question. If someone claims to have faith but has no deeds, can such a faith save them? And the reason why that is such a tough question and why that kind of gives us a little bit of that thing, you know, that visual, you know, that, that, that the reaction, physical reaction, I'm like, Ugh. the reason why it's that way is because when he's talking about faith and actions, James is actually connecting your salvation to it. There's salvation implications to this conversation and these questions that James is asking. And what he's asking, what he's talking about, really, at the end of the day, will reveal whether you are saved or not. Now, now some of you are like, man, this is, this, it, what time is it? It's 10.35. I don't deal with tough questions like this before 10.35 in the morning. And some of you are like, man, I got invited to church today because they said the music was great and the donuts are fresh and the coffee's good. I didn't, I didn't come here to do this. Friends, it's good to be confronted at times with what we believe. It's good to be challenged by God's word. And, and let, let me just offer this encouragement to you. If you find yourself having a little bit of that squirminess or a little bit of that, I don't know if I like this yet, it's okay. It's okay. I, I know this, that it's not me doing it. It's the word of God doing it. 
You can direct all emails to David at New Life. No, I'm just kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. If you, if you have some of those feelings today, receive it like this. God must want to show me something. Um, there's a reason why you're here today. There's a reason why you're watching online right now. God wants you to see something and he's gonna use the word of God to show it to you. So it's okay if you get a little squirm in your seats today. God's showing you something. He wants to get your attention. Embrace it. Don't deny it. And just say, God, whatever it is you want to show me, I'm ready. I'm ready. James' question is, if someone claims to have faith, I believe and trust in God, but I have no deeds. In other words, I don't do anything for the Lord. There's no actions that support what I say I believe. And James' question is, can that kind of faith save anybody? And I hope you understand this question. And not to just pound this in even further, but what I tend to do is I tend to put some things in my own words. I try to amplify so I fully understand. James is saying, if somebody claims to be a Christian, but they don't act like it at all, they're not motivated to serve the Lord. There's nothing in them that says, I gotta do this for the Lord. They're unmoved by the needs of others in the church or, or outside of the church. There is absolutely no burden in them for the lost. James' question, are they really saved? Now, before you get to James 2.14, where he starts asking these really tough questions, he's talking about a number of other things. He's talking about loving your neighbor as yourself. He's talking about ministry to orphans and widows. He's, he's talking a lot about equality, treating everybody the same and fairness. Now you get to chapter 2, verse 14, and he kind of ups the ante. That was kind of a warm-up for this. I want to talk about salvation. I want to talk about what it means to really be a Christian. And he's saying to the church, your very salvation may be riding on the fact that you actually do love your neighbor as yourself. Your very salvation may be riding on your compassion towards the hurting and the oppressed around you. Your very salvation may be riding on the reality in your life that you do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And I know it's very strong and it's very direct. But I believe that's okay to be strong and direct with questions as it relates to what the Lord wants us to be because we're talking about that kind of faith. We're talking about the kind of faith that God would have us to have in our lives. Now, one thing I'm very thankful about when I read the book of James is he does ask these very hard questions. But then he'll turn around and he'll answer his own questions. So he doesn't leave it up to us to come up with our own answer. It's not like, hey, what do you think? Oh, what do you think? What do you think? No, no, no. He's gonna tell us what the answer is to the question. Can Faith like that, save anybody. And he's gonna answer it by describing three different kinds of faith, two of which are not saving faith, only one of which is. And maybe you picked up on this in the text when we were reading it. And if you're taking notes, if you're one of those kind of people, or maybe you're in the app today and you're taking notes in the app, I want you to write this down. Dead faith. Dead Faith. The first kind of faith that James brings up here in chapter two is what he would call a dead faith. Now, just the name alone, if you were to call something a dead faith, I think we would instinctively know, I don't think that's what God wants. Dead, lifeless, there's nothing there. And he says, this is not a true saving faith. If you fit in the category of dead faith, it is not a saving faith. If I were to say the phrase, Christian in name only, would you know what I'm talking about? How many of you by the show of hands have heard that phrase before? Like, have anybody ever said, you are a Christian in name only? Well, you, do you realize that's an impossible thing to achieve? You cannot be a Christian 
in name only. It doesn't work. There's no such thing. But what they mean by that is that you've got all the right words. You can talk the talk. You can certainly, you know, sound like a Christian, but your walk does not match your talk. So if somebody talks a big game about being Christian, but there is no lifestyle change, nothing about their life that shouts being a Christian, then you might be accused of being a Christian in name only. That is exactly what James is talking about when he says a dead faith. We would call it a Christian in name only. Somebody who does that is somebody who substitutes actions with words. It's somebody that knows enough about scripture, knows enough about church life. They could pull up a chair around the table of other Christians and have a conversation, sound exactly like they know what they're talking about. But there's nothing in their life that is remotely Christian. There's nothing about them that shouts that there's been a change in their hearts and says there's no deeds, there's no behavior change. And it's a Christian name only. That's a dead faith person. And, and to illustrate it even more, he's, James is going to, I'm going to give you an example of what it looks like to have dead faith. He says, uh, let's suppose that a very poor believer came into church. We're talking about another brother and sister in Christ. And they come to church and they do not have proper clothing and proper food. We would say something like they basically don't have the, the foundational provisions for life. They do not have what they need to advance in life, to move forward, to sustain themselves. He's talking about somebody without the basic necessities. Somebody comes in and you meet them. It could be in church. I would say even somebody that you know, another brother or sister, I need help. The person with dead faith, the Christian in name only, who he's talking about is the person who notices it but does nothing about it. You know, James even says they say a few pious words. Well, you know, be well, be warm. You know, and I don't know if we would ever say that to anybody, but this is what it sounds like today. Man, I'm really sorry you're going through that. Hey, keep your chin up. I'm going to pray about that for you. But you know full well you're never going to pray for them. And James is like, what good is any of that? that that's phony. That there's, that, that's an evidence that there's been no change in your heart whatsoever. You're just all talk. And James is like, that is, my friends, a dead faith. This is an example of how not to be. And he equates all of these things. If you're just words, you're no action, there's no compassion, you could care less, you just say something to get rid of somebody, you are all talk and your faith is dead. And James is like, that is not a saving faith. And you don't have to look very far in the New Testament to find this teaching all over the place. In fact, Paul tells the church this in, in Galatians chapter six, verse 10. He says, therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially those who belong to the family of believers. There is a response from Christians towards the world that is a reflection of what you believe about Jesus. And it should be obvious and it should be seen. So the expectation is you, you gotta be good to everybody, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. Good to everybody, especially for the church. No excuses when it comes to your brothers and sisters in Christ. James is writing about a ref, uh, something that Jesus taught often. You, you might recall back in Matthew chapter 25, G, verse 40, Jesus famously said this, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. 
Jesus, in his whole ministry, his, all of his teachings come back to how we behave. And much of that, he's like, listen, when you serve others, when you take care, when you provide, it's not just doing it for them, you're doing it for me directly. So Jesus even pulls it in. So James is just, a, a, his teaching here is a reflection of what Jesus lived, modeled, and taught in his own life. So I hope it's obvious, friends, that we have an obligation to meet people's needs no matter who they may be. It's a matter of the heart that comes from a conviction of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit of God lives in you, there is a conviction that comes out of that, being led by the Spirit. You have the Lord living in you. He is alive and active in your life, and that produces this action, and it's evidence that you have a saving faith in your life. It's not dead at all. Maybe one of the best examples of this in the entire New Testament is when Jesus was teaching and he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and all your strength. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're familiar with this parable that he tells next, the people in the crowd said, and who is my neighbor? You tell me to love my neighbor as myself. Well, who exactly is my neighbor? And Jesus was like, well, I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you a little story. There's a guy that was traveling down the road. He got beat up and left for dead. And then the next three guys that came along all had different responses. The first guy was a priest. He took one look at the guy there dying on the road and he went around him and didn't help. And you'd think the priest, a man of God, a holy man would help him. No, he didn't. The next guy was a Levite. He's another kind of clergy member. Mm -mm, wouldn't touch the guy. But then... The third guy comes along, and he was a Samaritan, kind of a sworn enemy of the guy laying there dying on the road. What does he do? He has compassion on the guy. He, he helps him up. He gets him to the next town, bandages his wounds, and even takes care of all of his medical debt. And then Jesus said, who was right? Who's the neighbor here? And they were forced to answer. They didn't want, the crowd didn't want to answer this question, but they were forced. Well, it was the guy that helped him, and Jesus said, you go be like him. You go be like him. So back to the question, can somebody whose faith can be described as all talk and no action, is that a saving faith? Can that kind of save faith save anybody? And the answer, based off the teaching from the book of James, is an emphatic, no way, Jose. That doesn't work. There's an intellectual faith, I get it here, but I don't get it here. There's another kind of faith that James writes about in the text, and maybe you saw it. It kind of went fast, but I'm going to point it out to you. If you're still taking notes, write this down. A demonic faith. A demonic faith. Now, I know we're getting close to Halloween, and I don't want any of this words to scare you. You're going to hear a lot about this moving forward. Uh, about, but, but friends, a, a demonic faith, what in the world is that? He brings up demons as an example of a kind of faith. We don't think of demons as having faith, do we? That's not something we talk about very often. We don't associate demons with believing, but they do. And James acknowledges demons have faith, but let me tell you about it, it's not a saving faith. Did you catch it in the text, verse 19? You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Does it surprise you today to learn or be reminded that demons have faith? Is that, have you ever thought about it before? Demons are believers. Well, what exactly 
do demons believe? Well, for one, they believe in the existence of God. Do you realize there's no such thing as a demon who is an atheist? <laughs> or a demon who is an agnostic? That is purely a human thing. There's nothing in the spiritual world that reflects atheism like it does in our culture. Demons are believers. They believe in the existence of God. They also believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus encountered demons often in, in his travels, and um, it's more prevalent than what you might even realize. He had multiple, many encounters with demons. And they recognize exactly who he was. In fact, there's this time in Mark chapter three, verse 11, it says this, whenever the impure spirits saw him, talking to Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And just let that sink in. Demons are believers. They acknowledge the deity of Jesus. They would beg Jesus not to send them in the abyss, which means they believed in some kind of eternal punishment. And they submitted to his power, the power of the word, every time. You believe that there is one God, James says, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. That word shudder means that they tremble. They are extremely afraid. We would say it like this today. You believe in one God, good. Even the demons believe that and they are shaken in their boots. That's how we would say that today. Now, I'm not gonna go too far with this. Maybe there's a series in the future about angels and demons, but demons have faith. And they actually even have some responses to their faith. It's an emotional response. They shudder. They're shaking in their boots. So now, just take these two examples. He says, somebody can have a dead faith. They know it up in here in their mind, but it never translates into any kind of behavior change or actions. And he goes, that's not a saving faith. He says there's a demonic faith. He used the, the examples here. The demons, they know it up in here in their mind. The demons actually have an emotional response to what they believe. They're scared. But that's not a saving faith. So what that means is you kind of take a step back and say, what is James trying to communicate? It means that I can know it all up here in my mind. I can even have some emotional response. I can be moved by testimony. I can be moved by things that I read in the Bible. But if it doesn't translate into action, the question is, is that still saving faith? And James would say, no, it's not. So getting back to the question of the text, what is a saving faith? Well, we know it's more than intellect. We know it's more than emotions. A true and saving faith is something that you can see. It's something that can be easily recognized, and what I'm talking about is a changed life. What kind of faith is a saving faith? It's a faith that translates into a changed life. In fact, I would use this word if you're still taking notes. It's a dynamic faith. It's not a dead faith. It's not a demonic faith. It is a dynamic faith. A dynamic faith is a saving faith. A dynamic faith is when a person trusts Christ and they become a whole brand new person. The Bible calls this a new creation. The entire course of their life has been transformed by God. This person now, after going through this transformation, they see the world completely different. Now, they used to see the world through worldly lenses, and now they see them through saved biblical lenses, and they're starting to see the world like God sees the world. It's evidence of a change. This is a person now who lives every single day of their life by, by, by putting their actions, what they now do because of what they now believe, into practice. It's a changed 
life. James, in, in, in verse 18, look at it again. He says, someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. In other words, like we could separate the two. Like the two together become one. That's not how it works. He says, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. There's something visible. There is something actionable about a dynamic faith. That's what James is trying to communicate. When somebody puts their faith in action, it, that right there alone is evidence of a changed life. It's evidence that the person has been radically transformed by God. That's a dynamic faith. You can see it. It's, it's evidenced in somebody's life. Now, now, in the text, he gives us two examples to help us understand how faith and actions go together, this dynamic faith. And he uses two examples of two individuals from the Old Testament who could not be more different in every single way. He first brings up Abraham. Abraham was a Jew, like the original Israelite. He was the patriarch of the, of the Israelite people. And then you have Rahab, who was a Gentile. I mean, the exact opposite. Abraham was a godly man. Rahab was a sinful woman. The Bible calls her sometimes, depending on the translation, a harlot or a prostitute. Abraham was a friend of God. Rahab belonged to the enemies of God. What did they have in common? Because on the surface, we would say, they got nothing in common. Here's what they had in common. They both had a saving faith in God by putting their faith, what they came to believe about the Lord, into action. That's what they had in common. So take Abraham first. He's the first example. Um, God called him to be the father of many nations, um, that he was gonna rise up out of his family, would become a mighty nation, and out of that nation, we would get the savior of the world. That would be Jesus. And in Genesis chapter 15, verse five, the Lord takes Abraham outside of his tent, and he says, hey, Abraham, look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And what did Abraham think about this? It says in the very next verse, Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Now this is the exact same thing that James is referring to. Did you catch it in the text? This is that moment. He's, he's referring to, yeah, it was credited to him as righteousness. He believed what God said. Abraham believed that God told him he's gonna become a, a father of many nations and he believed it. And that was credited as righteousness. Now, from that point forward, Abraham was a changed man. Now, you might remember from our origin series where we spent a lot of time with Abraham's story. He was a changed man, but from this point forward, did he always make a wise, faithful decision? No. Did he always make the right call? No, in that way, he's a lot like us. But there was a change that took place in his heart, and from that day forward, he began to move forward and the best of his ability of what it looked like to obey God. And it all culminated in this one powerful moment that James is referring to. It's when God told Abraham to take your son, your one and only son, and sacrifice him. And what did Abraham do? He took his son, his one and only son, up on that mountain, and he pulls out of his knife and he's about to take his son, his only son's life, and just a second before he sinks the knife into his boy, God stops him. Sometimes the question gets asked, would have Abraham gone through with it if God hadn't stopped him? And I'm telling you right now, he would have. 
Even the Bible says Abraham reasoned that maybe God could even bring him back from the dead. He was gonna do it. He believed what God told him to do. He believed in the promises of God. He believed everything. And he said, I will move forward with what you tell me to do. Action. Now we, we know, thankfully, the Lord stopped him and provided a substitute sacrifice and both Abraham and Isaac came down off that mountain alive and well. And James points to that moment in Abraham's life when he was ready to move and act on what he believed. It was his faith and his actions moving forward together. It's a pretty incredible, powerful example of dynamic faith. Dynamic faith obeys God and then proves it every day in daily, holy living. Every day of your life is a reflection of what you believe and the decisions you make moving forward and the places you go and the things you do is a direct response and direct relationship to your newfound faith in Jesus Christ. That is faith and actions together. That's Abraham. And now you come to Rahab. Rahab couldn't be any more different than Abraham. We read her story in the book of Joshua chapter two and Joshua chapter six. Um, Israel is about to move into the promised land and they've got to conquer the city of Jericho before they can move into the promised land. And that is where Rahab lives. And so Joshua sends spies into the city of Jericho and that's where they meet this prostitute named Rahab and, and she hears them and she believes their, their words and she protects them and she sends them off so they don't get caught. And that is what James is talking about, part of her action. It is an exciting story and if you've never read it, you should go back and do it. It's one of these great examples of a saving kind of faith. So what did Rahab do? She heard the word. Our city is condemned. God's people are coming. Judgment is on its way. We are doomed. That's what she heard. And she believed it. Her heart melted. She believed it. She acted on it. She responded in her mind for sure. And, and in her actions, she went and told her family, when the Israelites come, you come to my house. And if you do, you will be saved. And all that she brought into her house were saved. She risked her own life, she believed, and she was saved. Faith and action move together. And so James comes to this conclusion. Verse 26, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So friends, again, this is very straightforward language in the text, so I'm comfortable talking about it in a very straightforward way. The Bible tells us as Christians that we should examine ourselves, examine where our walk is with Jesus, and determine if we are living a genuine Christian life or not. We have that responsibility. In fact, Paul challenged the church this way. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, he said, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. I don't like test. I honestly don't really like self-evaluation, to be quite honest with you. But it's a necessary thing that we as Christians do. So how do you test yourself? How do you examine? How do you take what James says and, and look inward and say, do I have dynamic faith? How do I know? I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay across you here before we're done, and we're almost done. A couple of questions. I would say these are questions to help you self-evaluate, to test yourself. You don't need to answer these out loud. You don't need to raise your hand. I don't expect, I don't want you to. These are reflective, personal questions. 
I'm gonna ask them in the first person, but I mean them for you and for me and for all of us. Here's a couple questions that'll help you examine yourself. Was there a time when I honestly realized I was a sinner and admitted this to myself and to God? I sometimes wonder how many people are filling the halls of our churches all across America who have never truly understood that they are a sinner and they have admitted that sin to God and to themselves. So that's a question that we should ask ourselves is, do I have dynamic faith? Well, have you realized you're a sinner and have you admitted it? Was there a time when my heart stirred me to flee from the wrath to come? Did I? You know, Rahab's story comes to mind here. She heard about the wrath to come to her city. She believed it and she acted upon it. And you know, friends, God's wrath is coming. There's a judgment day for all of us. Are you aware of it? And have you chosen to flee from God's wrath? Every Christian can do it through faith and a changed heart. Do I truly understand the gospel that Christ died for my sins and rose again? Do I understand and confess that I cannot save myself? Do you understand the foundational piece of the gospel here? That you do not possess the ability to save yourself. That's why we need a savior. That I, I, I cannot do it. There, there's not enough good deeds in the world that will ever save me. That's why my faith is in Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. My faith looks forward to his second coming and to heaven. This is what I believe. And that's a saving faith, which produces a changed life, which is action. But I by myself do not have what it takes to save myself. I can't work for it, can't earn it. There, there's not enough homeless people in the world I could ever feed to save me. You know, Christianity stands apart as the only world religion where we are saved not by what we do for God, but by what God has already done for us. So he sent his son Jesus. So the question is, do I truly understand this? If I'm gonna have dynamic faith, I gotta understand that Christ died for my sins and he rose again. Do I understand I can't save myself? Did I sincerely repent of my sins and turn from them, or do I secretly love sin and want to enjoy it? You know, I get the chance to talk to a lot of people about what it means to follow Jesus, and everybody's different. Everybody has their own progression towards walking with Jesus. But somewhere in that conversation, I'll, I'll look them in the eye and I'll, and I'll ask them, have you repented of your sins? The very sins that Christ went to the cross to die for you, for your salvation, have you repented of your sins. It's a vital part of dynamic faith. God, I am sorry for the sins I have done that have separated me and you. I'm so thankful you died on the cross to save me from those very sins. You took those sins upon yourself. Lord, I am so sorry and I have changed my mind about sin moving forward and to the best of my ability, Lord, I'm gonna live for you and live as sinless of a life as I know how to live and I know your grace will be there when I mess up. Have you repented of your sins? Have I trusted Christ and Christ alone for my salvation? 
Do I enjoy living relationship with him and through his word and with the Holy Spirit? Is that something I enjoy living in? Here's another question. Has there been a change in my life? Do I maintain good works? Or are my works occasional and at best could be described as weak? Do I seek to grow in the things of the Lord? Do I seek that out? Can others tell that I have been with Jesus? Here's another question. Do I have any desire in me at all to share Christ with somebody else? Or am I ashamed of him? Do I enjoy the fellowship of God's people? Is worship a delight to me? Finally, here's another question. Am I ready for the Lord's return? Or will I be ashamed when he comes for me? These are questions that help advance the conversation about do I have a dynamic faith or not? Do, is my life living up to the very thing that James is writing about in the text? Even King David, a man after God's own heart, he wrote this in one of his Psalms, Psalm 139, verse 23. He said, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is close to my heart today and it's strong within me because of where we're going as a church family and what we believe God has put in front of us to do. But, but more than any of that, this is so important and vital because the days we're living in are perilous days. And I'm not an alarmist. I'm not, I'm not that. But what I'm telling you is I believe in my gut, in my spirit, that the way the world is right now and the things that the world rejoices in and the things that the world finds acceptable and, and all the way the world is right now. And it's growing darker. I believe that is going to push on the church. And as that pushes on the church, the ones who stand firm in their faith are gonna be the ones left standing. I do believe that, that there's coming a day when those with dynamic faith will be separated from those with dead faith and demonic faith. And there's gonna be a separation. Now, that's just what I sense in my spirit. I, I believe that day is coming. So friends, let it be known here today that that push upon the New Life family is gonna get some resistance. And this is gonna be a church filled with dynamic, faithfully, people who love Jesus. So, friends, that's what I, I hope. That's what I hope. And I'd hope those that might have dead faith or, you know, intellectually or emotional response, I hope they will come and join us and their eyes will be opened and they'll realize what it is the Lord actually wants. But the day's coming when I believe the true church will stand and resist and the rest will fall away. Now, friends, he who has an ear to hear... Let him hear what the book of James, the inspired word of God, has to teach us today. Let me pray for you. Lord, I just thank you for very straightforward, very clear text from the book of James, Lord. And my, my prayer, Lord, is that we would be a church family that is a reflection of what James is talking about. That, Lord, we would be a church full of dynamic Christians with dynamic faith. 
But Lord, I pray for anybody in this room today that maybe right now has had their eyes open and they're being real with themselves for the first time in a long time. I actually thought I was living a dynamic faith, but I have been living at best a dead faith. I've been all talk, no action. I've been all judgment, no action. I've been a know-it-all. And I've been real good at telling everybody else how they have to live, but I have not lived it myself. So Lord, if that's anybody in our church, I pray, Lord, this be a a turning point in their life, that this would be an eye-opening experience. This would be such a convicting moment that they would be driven to their knees in repentance and ask for forgiveness. And we know it would be there. And I pray, Lord, it would be changed life. So that, Lord, we in unity together, although we are not perfect and we fail every day, but, Lord, we strive to put our faith into action. And the way we live is a reflection of what we believe, Lord. And with your help, the Spirit of God living in us, we will succeed in what you'd have us to be and to go and do. So, Lord, this is our prayer. And I pray over our church family that you'll open our eyes and help us to see clearly the way that you see the world. In Jesus' name, amen.